0: After the downing of a Russian jet by Turkey, Russia and NATO stand nose to nose, raising the threat of a world war that could lead to a nuclear holocaust that obliterates life on Earth. Happy holidays. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Yes, a lot of crazy stuff happening in the news. Yesterday, I think I misspoke and said that Russia had shot a Turkish jet out of the air or something. It just, just came out that way. It was garbled. But I didn't want to start an international incident. I was afraid that I, I heard that Klevin said that. No, no, it was Russian. It was Russian. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so much is happening. Life on Earth is, uh, you know, completely under threat. So I want to start by talking about a personal grudge. I have with uh, somebody somebody in this very room, in this very room, someone has betrayed me. It's like the Last Supper, except with me instead of Jesus, which, okay, has a substantial difference, and so maybe it's not like the Last Supper at all. But but yesterday, now, I've, I've spoken before about how much I love working at the Daily Wire. This is true. I love coming in here. The people are great. However, yesterday, I go out and meet a friend at a cigar bar. And I love this guy because he always brings me a great cigar. He, he, brings, he takes care of the cigars, I take care of the scotch. That's how, we, that's how we work it. And he also, because he's a cigar lover, he knows all these great places in LA. I'm kind of new to LA. And I, I mean, a cigar bar to me, to sit in a, cigar, a bar smoking a cigar and drinking a single malt with a game on television, I won't say anything shallow like heaven is a cigar bar. But heaven includes a cigar bar, okay? <laughs> because you know, like the, the hymn, you know, the hymn says, "We'll we'll praise God for ten thousand years." After that, I'm hitting the cigar bar. I'll be Like, yeah, that was ten thousand. I'm done, you know. I'm done. <laughs> I'm, hitting a, I'm hitting a I'm hitting a cigar bar. And you know, one of the things I love about the cigar bars is people say whatever they want because it's almost all guys. It's all guys. Let's let's face it. Yesterday, I'm sitting there, and two guys, two British guys in back of me, are going on this anti-Semitic rant. And the guy says, the guy says, I said, it's the Jews, you know, who start all the wars. It's the Jews. But you you can't say that in Los Angeles because it's politically incorrect. I thought, no, actually, you can't say it because it makes you a flaming jackass. (laughs) Just just because something is politically incorrect doesn't actually mean it's true, you know. It could be politically incorrect and incorrect at the same time. Anyway, I'm sitting there talking to this pal, and we're smoking a cigar, whereupon he reveals to me That Jonathan Hay, the man who produces this show and who does all this great technical stuff, had a poker game at his house and did not invite me. This is insane. I mean, really, really. I mean, come on. Oh, let's do that again. Oh. (laughs) I mean, we were talking yesterday about how much I love games. My favorite game of all games. You asked me what was my favorite game, but we were talking about board games, so it didn't come into my head. My favorite game of all games is poker. And just to make you feel really bad, I'm going to tell you about the last poker game I was in. This is an absolutely like, word for word true story. I, I mean, I was so I was so hurt that I had to retire to my safe space. Luckily, my, <laughs> my luckily luckily my safe space is a cigar bar, so I didn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> so there I was. But this is true. This is the last poker game I ever played. I love poker. I mean I love poker. And and I'm a good person to have because I'm only a mediocre poker player. I mean somebody You're in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm a, a shark will come in and take all your money. I, you know, I win some, I lose some. But somebody explained to me long ago that just in the same way that Scrabble is not a game about words, it's a game about tile placement. Once you figure that out, the game is no longer fun, but you become a much better Scrabble player. And poker is not a game about cards or luck. It's a game about money and how people react to money and how people think about money. And once I realized that, I realized I'd always be a mediocre card player because I don't know anything about money. I've been really fortunate. I've made, I've made good money in my life. But if my wife didn't take care of it, I would be, like, broadcasting today from a dumpster. You know, i say, like, yes, we're in the dumpster. To give me a show. I'm an artist. I know nothing about money. So I'm a good person to have at a poker The last time I played poker, Santa Barbara, I had this game. And every month, an email would go out to about 20 people, there's a poker game. First seven people to answer it would get in the game. I was always among the first seven because I love playing poker, okay? And so I would go once a month and play this game of poker. I just loved it and there was all these guys. I didn't really know anybody because it'd be a kind of a different group. This is how long ago it was after the second George W. Bush election, after he beat Gore. I come in to play cards and somebody is wearing a button with a W with a slash through it, right? No W. Which I thought was kind of rude. It's a poker game. You don't want to get too political and all this stuff. But, but okay. I don't mention it. Deal goes around. It comes to me and I call Texas Hold'em. And the guy says, we don't want to talk about Texas today. And I, who never let a remark go unanswered. I mean, I'm always very polite, but I never let a remark go unanswered. I said, well, actually, I'm on the other side, so I can, I can call it. The game stops. That's absolutely stopped. Seven guys at a table, six guys just absolutely stopped dead. Wait, you voted for George W. Bush? Yeah, you know, I'm a conservative Republican. I mean, I would have voted for a more conservative Republican. He was the only one available. They said, I'm sorry, we we always think of, you know, we hear, he says to me in this kind of sensitive voice, we here always think of conservatives as stupid. (laughs) So uh, we'd like to hear why you did that. And I said, no, I'm I'm playing cards. I don't want to (laughs) talk politics. I I talk politics all the time. I'm not going to, you know. Thrice, thrice I denied them, okay, three times they say, we got it, you have to explain, three times I said no. Finally, I said, okay, for a couple of minutes I'll talk about this and then let's go back to playing cards, okay. So for a couple of minutes I explained that Bush wasn't my favorite president, but he was much better than the idiots who were running against him and that, you know, he had done some good things and things I liked and things I didn't. And somebody says, well, what about abortion? I said, that's the end of the conversation. I'm not talking about abortion over a poker game because <laughs> it can only end in tears, right? So we go back. That finally did it. We go back to playing cards. After the game is over, we all have a drink, as we always did, and they say to me in the same sensitive liberal voice, they say, thank you so much for sharing with us, you know, because we really didn't understand, and you we, we really helped us get a better, you know, a broader point of view. I said, great. A month goes by. The letter goes out. The email comes out. Come to the poker game, I answer, I'll, I'll be there. The phone rings about an hour later, and it's the guy who brought me into the game, who's a friend of mine, and he says, how, do you, how did you feel about that conversation you had at the last poker game? I said, fine. I said, I don't like to talk politics over cards, but I felt fine. They don't want you to come back. <laughs> I, said, I said, you have got to be kidding me. No, they felt, they didn't feel safe. They said, you, they said this is true, they said, you were too aggressive. I, said, I was. I begged them to leave me alone. <laughs> and so he said, "Well, how do you feel about this?" And I said, "Well, I feel that if they don't want me at their game, I don't want to be there. You know, I mean, that's fine. That's the last time I played poker. So, you know, when you don't invite me to your poker game, I just want you to know that like, it's like my li- my lived experience is being is being violated. <laughs> so I just wanted to give you a hard time about that. All right, now back back to the rest of the world uh, here. <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm coming with a big Obama thing with a dart in it, yeah. You know? <laughs> mm. So here's a story I love, which is obviously not the main story of the day, but at Princeton, the, the, the black students' union for wasting our educational years so that we can't get a good job and can complain more about how white people are mistreating us, the BSU, never mind. <laughs> they, uh, they went on. and they protested the fact that some of the buildings and schools at Princeton are named after the former Princeton president, Woodrow Wilson, former president of the United States, and also Princeton president, Woodrow Wilson. They want his name taken off. The New York Times, which I read so you don't have to, celebrates this, right? Now, I have to tell you, Woodrow Wilson was a crap president. He was a bad president. He was this intellectual who blew World War I in a big way. And a lot of the reason World War I led to World War II was because Wilson, like Obama is today, just let the world go out of control. He didn't, he didn't take charge of the peace after World War I. And, and so it was bo- botched, and it led to World War II. Terrible, terrible president, but progressives love this guy. I mean, if you read biographies written by leftists about Woodrow Wilson, it's like he walked on water. They love this guy. Suddenly, no. Suddenly, this is the New York Times on Princeton. Student protesters at Princeton performed a valuable public service last week when they demanded that the administration acknowledge the toxic legacy of Woodrow Wilson, who served as university president and New Jersey governor before being elected to the White House. He was an unapologetic racist whose administration rolled back the gains that African Americans achieved just after the Civil War. That is absolutely true. And you know who writes about it? You know who was like one of the first person to really publicize it? Ann Coulter. Because she talks about how, you know... The blacks keep voting for these incredible races, namely Democrats. My feeling is, yeah, take Wilson's name off, then take LBJ's name off because the Great Society slowed the advance of blacks into the middle class. The blacks were really moving quickly into the middle class when uh, LBJ took office and then the Great Society destroyed them, destroyed their families, the welfare, so take his name off, take Obama's name off everything. Don't put Obama's name off every, anything because blacks have really suffered under Obama, both in terms of economics and the terms of the fact that his attacks, his race-baiting attacks on the police, are going to cause more black people to die. So take his name off, or. Or save time and just don't vote for Democrats. And <laughs> so you don't have to erase all the names off the buildings because it's hard once they're in there. You know, it's tough, the eraser breaks and everything like that. I, I, I did a piece about this at PJTV, Clavin at on the Culture, and usually I just play a snippet of this, but I'm going to play a few minutes of this because this is all factual. This is a, a piece called Why Do Blacks Vote for Democrats, okay? And I just, I just take the history of it, and it's all, it's all true except for a few jokes I threw in there. Listen to this. There are many mysteries that trouble the human mind. How did the universe come into being? Why is there evil? What the hell are women always complaining about? But of all these conundrums, the most baffling enigma is surely this. Why do black people vote for Democrats? Today, the terrifying answer. The Democrat party has always been the party of racism. Fortunately, in 1850, men of conscience opposed to slavery formed a new party, the Republicans the Republicans chose as their leader Abraham Lincoln, who had risen to fame after inventing the $5 bill. Lincoln wrote powerful speeches (laughs) denouncing slavery, which he posted on the walls of the Greek temple in which he lived, for some reason, until his leadership in the Civil War brought the unholy (laughs) institution to an end. After the war, Democrats throughout the South passed so-called Jim Crow laws, which effectively stripped blacks of the freedoms won for them by their Republican allies. And yet, bizarrely, in 1912, many African Americans deserted the Republicans to help elect Democrat President Woodrow Wilson, a virulent racist who allowed the Jim Crow laws to spread to the federal government. By the middle of the 20th century, Democrat segregationists like George Wallace, Orville Phobos, and Bull Connor were defending the Jim Crow laws against the growing civil rights movement. As late as the 50s and mid-60s, Democrats like Lyndon Johnson, Sam Irvin, and Al Gore Sr. opposed civil rights legislation while Republicans overwhelmingly supported it. For more on this, check out the excellent book, Demonic, by Ann Coulter. Holy smokes, would you look at the gams on that to me. (laughs) Sorry. It's a Democrat tradition that Richard Nixon won the racist South for Republicans with his famous Southern strategy. Another Democrat tradition is lying. In fact, Nixon was a powerful and effective supporter of desegregation and civil rights. Likewise, the Reagan administration brought greater economic gains to blacks than any other racial group, and the law and order policies of Republican New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani saved thousands of African American lives. Yet Nixon, Reagan, and Giuliani are all derided as racist, while blacks continue to vote for Democrats whose policies have destroyed their neighborhoods and families alike. Why? Claven on the culture's crack team of investigative reporters working around the clock have managed to steal the work of Walter Russell Mead and Michael Barone to uncover a clue to the terrifying answer. Over the last 10 years, the U.S. Census shows Blacks have been migrating in droves from failed Democrat-led urban centers to successful areas governed by Republicans. The implication is inescapable. There is a massive African-American conspiracy to take revenge on America for its past racism by electing Democrats and then quickly escaping <laughs> crappy policies. Under this diabolically clever plan, blacks have helped elect Democrats to lay economic and social waste to areas like Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, and Compton, and then have snuck away the thriving Republican areas where there are still some jobs and affordable housing. Today, we at Claven on the Culture want to send out this desperate plea. Black people, we weren't even born during slavery days. Most of us weren't around for Jim Crow. Have mercy, stop voting for Democrats. Please, have mercy. <laughs> it's all a conspiracy. It's revenge. That's, that explains it. It's the only reasonable explanation. All right, here's this this crazy thought I had yesterday, right? All this stuff is happening, especially in the Middle East and Paris and all the violence, and now Russia and NATO are, are nose-to-nose over this uh, down jet and down rescue helicopters. Now it's, it's getting worse and worse. So... Yesterday, I was going to do a show. I was doing show prep, and I was going to do a show about this absolute nonsense thing that is going on about how Hollywood is underpaying women, and, not allow, and somehow Hollywood now has a responsibility to hire women. I mean, as if Hollywood were one big business that were somehow excluding women instead of a bunch of little businesses that are doing whatever they, they can to make money. So it's, it's ridiculous. But one of the crazy things that came out of this is suddenly these feminists are saying, you know, when we look back at the movies of the 40s and 50s, Women had more complex roles. And what's a joke about this is the feminists in the 70s and 80s, one of the big, big things they were complaining about is all those old movies they only showed us as housewives or whores, you know. And I thought, really? Have you ever seen an old movie? you know? And now suddenly, I mean, this is obviously the theme of the show. Suddenly what progressives are doing are trying to solve the problems the progressives caused in the past. They could just solve the problems by becoming right-wingers, and then they wouldn't have these problems. We'd skip a step, you know. So, so I started to look at old movies, you know, little clips to bring in. And of old movies. And I came upon this clip, uh, which is from Adam's Rib, a terrific old Tracy Hepburn picture, 1949. And I'll just, I'll play the clip. The, the, the story is two lawyers are married, a very feminist story. It was written by a husband and wife team, uh, Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanin and two lawyers are married and they get on opposite sides of a murder case and so there's tension in their marriage as there's tension in the courtroom and it's and Tracy and Hepburn were having an affair so they're just absolutely you can just it just comes right off the screen they're absolutely nuts about each other and one of the things that's annoying Tracy is that this songwriter this really sleazy songwriter is flirting with his wife and obviously trying to seduce her and he's written a song for her that was really written by the great Cole Porter but he's written a song, and it's become a hit. So everywhere Tracy goes, there's this song that this guy wrote to his wife. Okay, in this very famous and incredibly sexy scene, Hepburn and Tracy are wrapped in towels, and they're giving each other a, you know, a massage. And first Hepburn gives um, Tracy a massage, and when she's finished, she gives him a swat on the backside, and says, "All right, it's my turn." And then he gives her a massage. And so that's what's happening. If you can't see it, so just play play the whole clip. tell me that judge is impartial. Mm-hmm. Every time I look up at him, I can just see him. Quiet. Please. It doesn't do you any good if you don't... Wait a minute. Relax. I'm relaxed. And uh, mm. I can feel. So can I. You can? Mm. Oh! What are you doing? Testing. Oh. 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 Oh, I thank you. Seems to me I need this more every year. You're aging fast. That's all. You can say that again. All right, I will. You're aging fast. That's all. Oh, and you're helping. Mm -hmm. Mm. Done. Oh, I thank you. I thank you. What? There ought to be some news on the radio. You want to hear it? It's good news. Yep. Well. Oh, sorry. I'll do my best. Why don't they have all the good news on one station and all the bad news on another station? Wouldn't that be good? Mm. I guess nobody's the I got the station with the bad news. <laughs> Getting awfully popular, Kip's song. I hear it everywhere. So I. Uh, I hear it sometimes even when it isn't playing. <laughs> I deal Farewell, do. Well Amanda. Hey, don't... What's the matter? Don't you want your rub now? What what's uh what are you sore about a little slap? No. Well what then? You meant that, didn't you? You really meant that? Why, yes, no, you did. I can I, tell. I know your touch. I, I know a slap from a slug. Well, okay, okay. I'm not so I sure want... it is. I'm not so sure I care to expose myself to typical, instinctive, masculine brutality. Oh, come on! And now, it felt come. not only as though you meant it, but as though you felt you had a right to. I can tell. What have you got back there? Radar cooking? <laughs> <laughs> great dialogue. It's so good. Ruth Gordon and Garson Canaan. Great writers. Directed by George Cooker, one of the great female, one of the great directors of female films. Uh, of films. So I'm listening to this. And uh, like I said, I'm trying to prepare a show about women in Hollywood, which is kind of a dopey subject. I may come back to it. But I just thought, what if there was a radio station that played only the good news and one that played only the bad news? And the reason this came up to me is I came in here yesterday, and I was sitting in makeup with the lovely Lindsay, which is my favorite part of the day. After this, it's, it's all downhill after that. This is, this is like how I, what I do just so I can be in makeup. And, and Lindsay says to me, the world is falling apart, going to hell in a hay basket." And I did a terrible thing. I did the one thing no author should ever do is I quoted myself to her. And I actually had to go home and look up the quote on the internet so I could quote myself accurately. And I had in in Empire of Lies, the guy is watching TV. Empire of Lies is about a guy watching television and realizing that he's exposing a plot as he puts the TV shows together. And he says, the world always seems like it's going to hell when you're depressed and of course, it always is going to hell in some way. That's what makes it so hard to tell the difference between Armageddon and the blues. So, so in other words, it's always a, a little difficult to tell whether this is the end of the world or not. And of course, conservatives have this amazing talent for linking the dots between anything that happens, especially any change that comes along, to disaster. They find the way that the path leads to disaster. So yesterday I was talking about William Wordsworth who became, he's kind of our brother from another era. You know, He started out as a radical and then became, as he realized what was going on, he became a conservative. And by the end of it, he was voting against Catholics having the vote in England because he saw, well, they'll have this loyalty to the church. And the Church of England is the support of British freedom, and therefore, British freedom will collapse because the church will be, you know, he did that thing, that conservative thing. We do it today with gay marriage. If gays are married, then regular marriage will be devalued marriage is the building block of a free society because it helps us govern ourselves and we don't need free government, therefore we won't be able to govern ourselves, so gay marriage immediately equals fascism. And you think like, well, maybe, you know, or maybe gay people will just go out and get married to the rest of us will still get married to each other, you know? I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going happen? I mean, you know, in this, and the thing is, a lot of times the doomsayers, somebody, Patrick O'Brien once said, the doomsayers are always right. And in a way that's true, but they don't really imagine the world that will result. So, like, after slavery, there were all, all these doomsayers saying, oh, my God, now that the slaves are free, eventually black people are going to want to marry white people and they'll dilute our racial purity. And so, of course, they were absolutely right. That's absolutely what happened. And you wind up with, like, Derek Jeter and Halle Berry, you know. So it's not as bad as we thought as we thought it was going to be, you know. It actually, you know, the worst, the worst possible scenario, sometimes not. So yesterday I'm driving home. And I hear Glenn Beck, and I love Glenn Beck. You know, Glenn, I worked for Glenn Beck for about six months when he first started his cable channel, and it didn't work out. I'm, you know, my they never could produce enough of my stuff to get it on TV. But Glenn was always really good to me, and I I always noticed that the people who work for Glenn Beck have worked for him for a hundred years, and they really like him. You know, they they've been with him since he was doing you know radio in Poughkeepsie or wherever he was doing stuff. And and that always speaks well of guys. So I so I like him. But he is a doomsayer. No matter what happens, it's going to be the you know the worst possible thing ever. And recently I heard um, who's who's the Mathis who's the Carol who's the Carolina Panthers uh, quarterback Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Uh, you know he was a big draft pick, first draft pick in in twenty eleven, and. And then he didn't do so well, and all the papers said, oh, what a bust, and all this. And of course, now, this year, he's 10-0. and 0. And he said to this this is paraphrasing him, but he said to the sports writers, you know, if you guys got paid according to the accuracy of your predictions, the way I get paid for the decency of my play, you wouldn't be making any money. <laughs> and so I always think with Glenn, well, okay, if every day is the apocalypse, at some point, at what point is it not the apocalypse, you know, because because the thing about the thing about pessimism, I'm, I, people think I'm an optimist, I'm not, I'm a tragedian, and the thing about being a tragedian is you know the end is bad, you're like a doctor, you know your patient's going to die, but the question is when, right, I mean, I, if, if you're a doctor and a 50-year-old comes in and you say to him, I'm sorry, but you're, you're going to die, and he says, well, when, well, 30, 40 years and you're done, you know. That that's that's what that's what philosophers call a category error. You know, you're, you're you're confusing eternal things with temporal things. Everything human dies. Everything humans make die. Our republic will fall. Our country will disappear. The only people who will still be here are the Jews, because they're here forever. (laughs) After those guys in the bar are gone, the Jews will still be here. But America will fall. But the question is, will it fall today? That's the point of being a conservative, is you're the doctor. You're trying to save it today. And people talk about financial bubbles, right? They'll say, like, oh, well, yeah, Reagan saved the economy, but eventually the the economy crashed. Yeah, 30 years later, 25 years later, that's, that's a big part of your life. You can make a lot of money and have a lot of good times in 25 years, and then, you know, you hope another Reagan comes along and, and saves the day again. So if, if you don't confuse, if you understand that everything dies, it's all about saving it for today, you know? Forget about your children. Your children are just going to have to take care of themselves the same as you did, you know? I mean, like they're going to have to take up the, the, the fight. So I started to think, after watching that Hepburn and Tracy clip, I started to think, well, what what is the good news? You know, I mean, here they are, This you know, the, Glenn Beck is making all the links. He's doing that conservative thing. This is, Turkey's part of NATO. You know, Russia is loves humiliating the U.S., so now Russia and NATO are, are face-to-face. NATO has this thing called Article 4, once which means we all have to support each other if we get in a war. So... We're done. Yeah. We're toast. You know. I mean, obviously, Turkey and Russia will go to war. We have to support them. We'll go to war. We all have nuclear arsenals. Kaboom. We're, you know, <laughs> we're all be at the cigar bar. You know, <laughs> we're all adjourning <laughs> to the cigar bar. So I thought, well, okay, but what if I connected the dots in a different direction and got to a good. I mean, he, you know, God love Glenn, but he doesn't know. You know, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Neither do I. But what if I connected the dots in a rational way, and thought, what's the good news? First of all. Let's let's begin with this. Barack Obama has destroyed the Democratic Party. Barack Obama has been very successful for himself, but in being successful for himself, he has absolutely destroyed the Democratic Party. I looked it up just where I wanted to see what was going on. 900 seats in state legislatures have been lost since Obama was president. He's lost almost 70 Democrats. More than 900 state legislators, more than 70 Democrats in the in the Congress. Um, we took Here's the here's guy's fact-checking this. The bottom line, Republicans now control about 56% of the country's over 7,000 state legislative seats, up 12 percentage points since 2009. 35 states posted double-digit seat losses. I mean, we've taken over state houses. We obviously have taken over both houses of Congress. People are complaining about... The fact that the Republicans haven't been aggressive enough, but Obama has gutted the Democratic Party. Now, with the latest uh, disaster in Paris and what's going on in the Middle East, the new polls are showing that Hillary Clinton. I mean, look, the Democrats have this demographic advantage. I think they gain like four percent every election cycle, in in the the electorate because of more Hispanics and things, people who are traditionally Democrat voters. But in a, a an election is a by is a two person thing, you know you only have to choose between one and another and people do cross party lines, and Hillary is a deeply flawed candidate. Now the polls are saying that a lot of the Republican candidates could could beat beat her. okay. So let's just say and even even in the in the Middle East, people are now looking I mean, o- Obama has handled this so badly. Obama is in Turkey, right? in Turkey where the People are shouting Allahu Akbar during the moment of silence for terrorists, and Obama is attacking Republicans. He's attacking Americans in Turkey. You know, I mean, even people who like him, like uh, Walter Russell Mead, the guy at American Space, he's an he's a Obama supporter. He's going, this is Obama's fault. He's talking about how, you know, Obama has brought about this Syrian crisis. Himself, and it's very cynical of him, it's very cynical of him to use the crisis as if he were the great uh, you know savior, the great compassionate savior when he has caused this problem. So let's look at it this way, right? This, oh, this is what Walter Russell made. He says, to see the full cynicism of the Obama approach to the refugee issue, one only has to ask President Obama's least favorite question, why is there a Syrian refugee crisis in the first place? Obama's own policy decisions, allowing Assad to convert peaceful demonstrations into increasingly ugly civil war, refusing to c- declare safe havens and no-fly zones, were instrumental in creating the Syrian refugee crisis. So everybody knows this, okay? So no one knows what's going to happen next. It might be what Glenn Beck says, but let's look at it this way. Putin is a paper tiger. He is out of money. He's got no money, right? The minute the oil market crashed, Russia's broke. So their army will melt away. He can march into every place he wants. Their army will melt away the minute it meets opposition. It, he, he just doesn't have the wherewithal to fight a war. And he knows it. I mean, Putin Putin only is acting as aggressively as, as he is in reaction to Obama's weakness. Obama's got a year left, okay? So he's out of dough. The ISIS troops are really good at murdering women. They're excellent, excellent at raping and murdering women and children. They're really good at behaving, beheading people who have no guns. But the minute they meet any kind of an armed force, they melt away too, okay? So let's just say Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio have both been talking really good sense. What, No matter how you feel about their other policies, they've both been talking really good sense about the international issue. So let's say Obama alienates enough people so that to overcome the demographic advantage that the Democrats have, and we get a Republican president. Putin's finished. Putin is finished. The minute anybody stands up to him, he's gonna back down. He's a total paper bully. ISIS is a much more difficult Thing. we're going to have to start clearing them out, but we've got guys like Rubio talking about how these refugees should be given very, very uh, compassionate answer, how these refugees should be given safe haven in their own countries, in, in the Middle East. And, and these guys are talking about radical Islam, which, by the way all these decent people who are Islamic and let's don't kid yourself that there are no not plenty and plenty of good people who are Islamic there are there are plenty of good Americans who are Islamic we expose them to the bad guys by not criticizing them so every time Obama won't mention the the name like faulty towers he won't mention radical Islam he's exposing the good Islamic people to these bad people who are taking over their mosques so Okay, so now we get a Republican administration, they stand up to ISIS, this weariness of war that was caused by George W. Bush's incompetence in prosecuting the invasion of Iraq. It took him too long, America ran out of patience, we got tired of having troops come home, we got tired of the drumbeat. That's gone now because we see Bush was right, everything is, the, the threat is real. So we go back, we send in some special forces, we do it with a lot more in, uh, intelligence, we don't invade, we just simply send our forces in to wipe these people out. ISIS is a dangerous threat because they're hard to find, but they're not a dangerous threat. Once you find them, they can be wiped out. Now you have the good Muslims who start to feel a little bit safer and start to stand up and start to stand up. Our economy recovers. There's billions and billions of dollars in investment that has been standing on the sideline because nobody trusts Obama billions of dollars. The minute Obama is gone and a Republican pro-business president takes over, that money is going to come rushing back into the economy. You will see this economy skyrocket. It's happy days. This is the best thing that's ever happened. Play it. Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. Let us sing the song of here again. Happy days are here again. All right. That's a take you're not going to hear anywhere else on conservative broadcasting, folks. <laughs> this is the best day of your life. It's World War III. It's the best day of your life. <laughs> All right. Stuff I like for Thanksgiving. I mentioned Cole Porter, who wrote that you know kind of little ditty in the uh, in the movie. Cole Porter, one of the greatest of great American songwriters, another another gay guy who's going to be at the cigar bar. so <laughs> you know, he's, he's just fantastic. And no one interpreted him better than Ella Fitzgerald except maybe Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald both gave these great performances. If you've never gotten the album Ella Fitzgerald, the Cole Porter songbook. It is one of the great, great albums of that era. This song that I love is called I Concentrate on You, and to to show you how brilliant this guy was, not only do the verses rhyme within themselves, like in most songs, but the verses all rhyme with each other, and it's so expertly done that you could, if I didn't tell you, you would listen to it for years before you realize that all the verses rhyme with each other. And it's also just got this wonderful, some of these guys, they could write the most condensed optimistic lyrics like the last lyric is whenever wise men say to me that love's young dream never comes true to prove the, that even the wise men can be wrong I concentrate on you I mean what a great lyric come on <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing is just great Ella Fitzgerald's voice clear as a bell happy Thanksgiving folks we'll be back after the holiday have a great holiday remember this is the day that the Lord has made rejoice in it and be glad I'm Andrew Clavin. this is the Andrew Claven show I'll see you on Monday Whenever skies Look gray To me And trouble I concentrate.